Greetings and good evening. This is Tabitha. Welcome to White Wellness. Today is March 22nd, 2023. Broadcasting out of New York for White Wellness Radio. This show is called The Holy Human. Welcome. First live broadcast of the spring season uh, or of the new year if we're going by the lunar calendar, not the Gregorian triple parentheses calendar. So happy spring. Happy spring equinox to everyone who's listening. So let's start out with the word of the week, or maybe it's more of the word of every two months. It's been a long time since we did a long, uh, I guess, a, a whole broadcast. I think it was January 31st. Actually, the longest I've gone since I started broadcasting without doing a live broadcast. I don't feel rusty in any regard. It's just been kind of a transitional time for me, and it was easier to do those little wee tidbits whilst walking in the woods, whilst taking the sauna. But tonight, it's an evening too, I usually do a kind of afternoon show. This evening I'm live, I'm doing a full show, and it's called The Holy Human. But first, we're going to do the word. We like to do, always do like a word, something antiquated to kind of uh, make ourselves feel smarter than we are, or actually we are smart. It's just we don't get to hear a lot of these great words anymore. I'm getting lean on these cards, by the way. I only got a couple of them left. I'm going to have to find a new resource pretty soon in regards to finding cards of interesting words. So let's shuffle up what's remaining and let's pick a card. All right. Here we go. The word is Sandisman. Middle English expression for a messenger. Literally, literally a man who was sent. Anglo-Saxons used a similar sandis meme, which later anglicized to sandaroon. Until 1653, when a primitive postal system was first organized in Paris, all correspondence was delivered by courier. Fearful of how the new service might affect them, the messengers deposited mice in the new letterboxes. From this collection of liaisons eventually came the Sandman, a messenger of slumber sent to lull children to sleep. And that word is Sandisman, a little bit of the origins of the postal service and how all that worked back in the 1600s. A new one for me, perhaps a new one for you. So today on the broadcast, I wanted to focus on things that could make us as healthy as possible. And in Kundalini, they always talk about the three H's. That's healthy, holy, and happy. And I think that's a really good trifecta in regards to gauging one's, you know, optimal wellness, right? So I want to spend the time on the show today talking a little bit more in depth about traditional Chinese medicine. I want to talk about the Chinese zodiac. And I want to talk just about a bunch of different stuff. I want to talk about beans. I want to talk about this ludicrous, let yet hilarious notion of, quote, health supremacy. This should give us a couple of chuckles during the broadcast. So a lot of good stuff to talk about. And I'm going to be playing music from the 1960s. So let's take a gander at the chat. Okay, we've got some people listening right now in the chat. Welcome to everyone who's listening. So let's start out by talking about the bean protocol. This is super interesting. And notice that beans are very much maligned in the current dietary paradigms, essentially every diet out there, maybe with the exception of some of the vegan diets, have something foul to say about beans. And maybe you're thinking, oh, beans cause gas, 
I don't want to be a gas chamber. I don't want to be farting up a storm. But the thing is, is that beans don't actually cause gas because plenty of people actually have gas who don't eat beans. The gas is actually caused by hormones. Yes, that's right. So the easiest way to actually get rid of having any gas from beans is to eat more of the beans, actually. I know it sounds totally counterintuitive to everything we've heard about beans, but that's actually how it's done. And beans are something that have been a staple. If you look across the entire world, not just the white or the European world, but all of the world, everyone's got some type of bean dish going on. Some countries tend to lean more on lentils, some do more on actual beans themselves, but everyone's got some type of bean dish going on. So the bean protocol, as it's been kind of dubbed in the popular dietary culture, was started off by a woman named Karen Hurd, and she was a former biochemist for the military. And back in the 80s, her daughter, she had a daughter who was 18 months old, she was poisoned by a high concentration of pesticides that were sprayed in the home. The home was I think uh, fumigated for some of a bug and the young child ended up getting ill from the organophosphate that was in the pesticides that were sprayed in the home. The child experienced seizures and cold, infections, allergies, warts, etc. So Karen Hurd took the child from doctor to doctor. All the diagnoses were terribly grim saying that the child was going to die. There was nothing she could do. So she took to the library. This is back in the day before the internet. She was in the library looking at the microfiche. Some of you who are of that age will, will understand what it was like before we could just get all the information at a click of a button. And she finally found out that giving her child soluble fiber could actually get the toxicity out of her system. And by six weeks of doing this protocol, she had a healthy child back, and this is when the bean protocol was developed. So it's the idea that taking in a soluble fiber, which most diets these days are devoid of soluble fiber, that soluble fiber is almost like a sponge and can soak up all the toxicity within the system. And of course, these days we live in a sea of xyosludge toxicity. It's everywhere we look, even if we're very diligent and very conscientious about what we're consuming, what we're doing. We still live in a world of, you know, zog fog, other people's stress, which can be contagious. I know we talk on the broadcast a lot about how contagion is a hollow hoax with the whole idea of the virus crisis and the way it AI and the idea that you cannot catch, you know, a literal virus because you can't, obviously. But you can contagiously pick up on someone else's emotions. Like ever go into a room and you just feel like totally vampired by a person, that's picking up on someone else's emotions. So we need something in our diet that's going to remove all of these toxic hormones that are formed from the stress. So that's where something like beans come in or any type of soluble fiber. And keep in mind that vegetables are insoluble fiber. It's not the same as soluble fiber. Soluble fiber comes from beans, it also comes from things like psyllium husk, which is a powder that you mix with a bunch of water. And you've got to chug that down with a ton of water. Otherwise, you'll have this like sponge literally within your intestines that will be almost like a blockage that can't get out. So I think beans are actually the best way to go about it. There are also certain grains like, let's say, barley and oats. Those are also rich in soluble fiber, but I believe that beans have about four times the soluble fiber that um, 
that oatmeal will have. So this bean protocol consists of eating beans or lentils three to six times a day for a minimum of three months or much longer for humans who have long-term illness and disease. And why beans, you may ask yourself. Well, the liver needs soluble fiber. So all these people doing these diets that are supposed to heal, you know, gastro issues, heal their hormones, lose weight, you know, any of the spicy buzz buzzwords these days, they're not giving their liver soluble fiber. And the liver is a natural detoxifier. The liver works with the gallbladder, the pancreas, and the intestines to digest, absorb, and process food. Its main job is to filter the blood from the digestive tract before passing it to the rest of the body. The liver also detoxifies chemicals and meta metabolizing drugs. As it does, the liver secretes bile that ends up back in the intestines, right? So the body really does a lot, especially the liver, which is this amazing filter of the body and the liver is something that takes a lot of abuse these days. It's not just alcohol. Of course, drinking that in excess is, is not a good idea, but there are many things that can get the liver in like a gunky, messed up way. Now we have a lot of people developing what they call NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This happens from eating things like industrial zio seed oils, just, you know, general goy slop, corn syrup, all of these things. So what happens is if we don't eat soluble fiber, the bile will recirculate in the body and all of those excess chemicals and toxins and hormones will return to the liver via the ileum called enterohepatic circulation. And in general, regardless of the consumption of beans, we recycle about 95% of our bile every single day. So if we take the beans, we will be making a dent in that to pull out all of this gunk in the body. So the only way the liver can adequately remove the toxic bile from the body is via the soluble fiber. The chemical composition of soluble fiber attracts and attaches to the bile's chemical composition where all the excess metals and toxins and hormones are housed from our body are housed. This bond means the bile cannot return to the liver. So once the soluble fiber from the beans and the bile attach, it goes into the toilet and it leaves your body in the form of a bowel movement. This is how Karen Hurd was able to remove the pesticides from her child's body, basically pulling out the, um, the toxins through the soluble fiber via a bowel movement. So it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So what happens when someone does not eat soluble fiber? So all the crap that's sitting in your liver recirculates repeatedly and then it gets reused. Almost imagine going to a restaurant and they keep on reusing the oil and the fryer over and over and over again to make something like French flies. So what happens over time? If anyone's ever worked in a restaurant, that grease trap gets thick, it ferments, it gets slowed down, it gets really, really gnarly. So once that flow slows down, your body stops working or it overworks to compensate for what doesn't work and it becomes this like terrible catch-22. So how would you know that your body was not functioning properly, that you weren't getting enough soluble fiber to basically move these toxins and used hormones out through the feces? You could have things like allergies and fatigue, stress, skin breakouts, either an excess or a lack of hormone production ill sleep, 
mental fog, inflammation, uh, what they call autoimmune disease, right? And then what happens is you end up craving sugar to soothe the stressors because we always crave carbohydrates or sugar during stress and alcohol would form and would um, be in this category as well because that's a carbohydrate. And then we also crave caffeine beverages so we can stay awake or get these bumps of clarity or we'll crave something even a more intense stimulant like let's say cocaine or something because we have all this toxicity recirculating in the system. And then what happens is that the sugar and the stress and the caffeine promote sludgy circulating hormones. So we can see this is like a dastardly um, circle, right? We get all this toxic bile because we're not eating soluble fiber. And then what will we do? We eat sweets and we take in caffeine so we can get this clarity and soothe our stressors, yet we're not getting to the root cause by removing the toxins. Basically, the sugar and the caffeine is just a band-aid to treat the symptoms. And beans, like I said, have the highest concentration of soluble fiber. So if you don't eat beans regularly, you'll end up farting because your liver is a garbage disposal. So when the beans are what turn on the garbage disposal, you'll have a constant flow of this and the farting won't happen. So if you don't eat beans regularly, all that junk will ferment and stink up your liver and you'll have gas if you're not eating beans regularly. But if you eat beans again, the garbage disposal essentially turns on and all that excess toxic buildup from your liver has to go somewhere, which is released in the form of bowel movements. And when you first start eating beans, you may start to fart in the beginning, but eventually you're going to be moving this toxicity out of the system, right? So with a little bit of uh, maybe you'd say turbulence to get past this point. And of course, you want to be making sure you're getting plenty of hydration along with the soluble fiber. That is like totally key. And you want to make sure you're getting adequate protein. That's really important too, especially if we want to feed our yin. We're talking a lot on the tidbits, talking about yin and yang and, and all of these things and how it works together and how in this modern world, it's so easy to become yin deficient and how we have this imbalance of mm -hmm. harmony. And we see oftentimes now, you know, with a transsexual agenda, you don't have to be a transsexual, but we see men becoming feminized and we see women becoming masculinized, like women are too young and men are too yin. So if we're able to eat something like beans, mm -hmm. we can really balance our system. And beans are a really good source that will feed the yin energy. They'll feed the kidneys and the kidneys and TCM are considered the door to life. They get really not a lot of play in the whole allopathic mm -hmm. system, shitstem. Everyone's really just talking a lot about, um, you know, the liver and things like that. But the kidneys, they really only talk about the kidneys when it's like, you know, someone needs a transplant or it's dialysis or something like that. But the kidneys are the door to life. They're considered the part of the body in TCM that have what has what's known as jing or essence. Mm -hmm. So when someone has weak kidneys or old kidneys or lagging kidneys, that's a sign that aging is going on, right? So if you hate beans, and I can't imagine someone would hate beans, but let's just say you're listening and you're like, oh my God, there's no way I'm going to eat beans. Well, you could do something like psyllium, which also has uh, a fair amount of soluble fiber, and you could get 
actual pills because lucilium becomes highly gelatinous in water. That mm -hmm. texture may be slightly off-putting to some people. I tend to like that kind of gelatinous type of, of food. I like, you know, gummy stuff and porridges and weird stews that are gelatinous, but not everybody likes that type of, of texture of stuff. But just make sure if you're going to do the psyllium that you drink a heap of water. Otherwise, it'll kind of just get lodged mm -hmm. inside of you. And you always want to start slow with this too. You don't just want to go whole hog and start eating like, you know, a cup and a half of beans per day, like anything else. Always here in the West, we have this notion that we have to go so intense and so in, so extreme when it's always good to implement something slowly and see how it works for you and then start adding it in. And then before you know it, you'll be having a couple of servings of beans a day and it will feel like old hat. So these beans, this bean protocol can do so many amazing things for you. Um, if you're dealing with, gosh, so many things from PMS, psoriasis, constipation, autism, gout, diabetes, uh, fibromyalgia, eczema, acne, ADHD, uh, Crohn's disease, uh, dental health in general, depression, diarrhea, um, colitis, mold um, symptoms, uh, sinuses, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, what's known as SIBO, graying of the hair, hormonal imbalance, thyroid issues, joint pain, gastritis, gout, psoriasis, Alzheimer's, uh, fungal issues. There are so many issues, balding issues, uh, kidney stones. There are so many things, PCOS. There are so many things out there that can be remedied by beans because a lot of these diseases are just basically symptoms of toxicity and they've decided via allopathy to give it a name, but it's basically just a conglomerate of toxicity. So other benefits of the bean protocol would be having glowing skin, stopping the graying or the promoting of natural hair color or getting more shine back in your hair, enhancing your mood, getting great sleep, having a menstrual cycle that's amazing with a low or zero PMS symptoms. So it's a lot to be said for beans. There's actually um, someone I was talking to on, on one of the groups in um, one of the Telegram chats that I have and she was dealing with endometriosis and she had a surgery scheduled for the endometriosis. Endometriosis is a disease or a condition, an ailment that when the tissue of the uterus grows outside the wall of the uterus tends to be something that seems to be rather common these days with, with ladies. And it's affecting ladies who are young, sometimes in their teens, their 20s, their 30s, their 40s. And she had a surgery scheduled and I posted some stuff about the bean protocol and she started to feel so amazing from the beans that she actually canceled the endometriosis surgery. So there's definitely promise to this and there's a reason why beans are maligned and spoken of with, um, with, Ill, with Ill connotations in the media because they're dirt cheap. You can go into the store and buy a bag of like, let's just say regular beans, not even like the organic or heirloom ones. You can get a bag of just like, let's say a pound of Goya beans for just a couple of bucks. And you can make an entire pot of beans with, with that one bag of beans. So wouldn't it behoove Big Z to say all this about beans? Like, oh yeah, they're terrible for you. They cause all these problems, uh, quote, anti-nutrients, um, 
they'll be farting up a storm, you know, all this stuff to keep people away. I mean, no one wants to be, you know, farting on other people unless they have some type of like gross fetish. I'm assuming most people listening are, are not into that type of thing. So of course they're going to malign beans when they know that they are very healing and that cultures have used them for millennia. They've actually been something that people have used to really sustain themselves for very long times all across the world. And keep in mind that they're not a protein. I know sometimes people think beans are a protein. They're not a protein. They are a starch. They are a carbohydrate. You want to pair them with a protein. Like today for a snack, I had some beans and I had a hard boiled egg and I put a little bit of Parmesan cheese on top of the beans. I had these white lima beans. That's how beans are supposed to be eaten. If we eat them with just other starches and no carbohydrates, then we're going to have blood sugar stuck and we're not going to be getting the proper nutrients. So we have to understand how to eat them. And it's important, like I said, to pair them with protein, to have enough water or hydration with them. So a lot of good stuff can happen from um, eating the beans. And then on this protocol, if someone wants to do the bean protocol, I mean, there are many ways to go about this. You can just eat the beans and work them into your diet, regardless of how you're eating, and you'll still see results. But the bean protocol itself tends to be, um, some might say, a wee bit strict. And the protocol goes as follows. So in addition to having beans and water and protein and vegetables and um, some nuts, it's also, rec and of course, warm water, not cold. You know how I feel about cold water, um, not a health food, not a good move, really only something that you want to drink if you're perspiring or you're in um, you know, a hot environment. The obsession with cold beverages here in America is, is mind-zoggling. So uh, in addition to eating the beans and the things I just said, you want to uh, basically delete or go low on sweeteners, especially white sugar. Uh, caffeine is not allowed on the bean protocol. They say that eating small amounts of caffeine can stimulate the adrenals, so that would be tea, even including decaf, uh, chocolate, and even cinnamon is in that category as well. Alcohol is not allowed. Uh, in most cases, dairy is not allowed, especially cow dairy or if it's cold. Obviously, processed foods. And staying away from fragrances, even natural fragrances. Obviously, I think most people know we stay away from, you know, Pledge and Glade and Febreze and all of this crazy crap, but also staying away from natural fragrances like the essential oils, which we have talked about before in certain broadcasts is really not being a great thing to stay away from fragrances as, as well, because even if they're quote natural, they can still have some type of altering effect on us. And finally, staying away from stress because stress will stimulate your hormones and you need to basically reduce stress. And when you're taking beans in general, it will reduce your stress and make you feel a lot better. But of course you have to find ways to reduce the stress in addition to eating the beans. So that's basically a, a little kind of like a synopsis, a little, little cliff notes or spark notes right there about the bean protocol. And you could use a melange of beans. There are all different types of, of beans that you could use. Um, anything you want, you could do lentils, you can do black beans, white beans, pink beans, red beans, 
purple beans, uh, some of those speckled beans that actually when they cook up, they end up kind of being just one, one color unto themselves. So there's so many ways to go about this and so many beans, they have different, not only do they have different flavors and textures, but they actually have different uh, properties as well. Like some beans, they're creamier. Some beans are starchier and have a thicker skin. So they all kind of have their own thing going on. But I think once you start eating them, you'll be like, wow, I, I really feel like a chill factor that I have not felt in the past if you're not eating them. I know with myself, I personally grew up eating beans at least twice a day. Growing up macrobiotic, it was a pretty big part of, of the diet. But then for a while, I got into a lot of the, you know, Zog, quote, ancestral diets, quote, ancestral, or more like parentheses. And I eschewed beans for quite some time. And I told myself that they were bad for me. And, you know, all these things you tell yourself and then you, you, know, you believe them and you know, they're not even true. And we all have done this before. And then I said, you know, fuck it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to try them again. I've always pretty much liked them. I have tons of recipes on how to cook them. So I added them back in and I was like, wow, this is really good. I'm like, this was what was, was missing. Because for a while I was like, I just need to add something back in. But, but what is it? And it was, it was beans. So yeah, give it a try. If you are not uh, keen on beans or if you're not eating them, think about adding them back in. And of course, like I said, make sure you're getting enough hydration. Make sure you're getting enough protein. Get some movement. Have some vegetables. So Eat, eat normal, healthy food, and you will, uh, you will reap the rewards of doing so. So let's take a uh, wee bit of a gander right now at the, uh, the chat and see if anyone is uh, in the chat right now. Okay, we got a couple of cats listening. Someone's saying, I don't eat beans. It makes my belly hurt. Well, then you have to figure out uh, why that is happening. Yeah, that would be what you want to do. Um, find out why that why that's happening. Everyone's going to have... Um, there's a very unsavory person in the chat who's uh, saying some creepy stuff, but whatever. Uh, so yeah, give, give the beans a try. Uh, see if they work for you. And you'll probably be pleasantly surprised to see how that works for you. And maybe you'll be feeling a little bit different. It always gives something a couple of, you know, weeks or so to kind of, you know, get the, the vibe of if it works for you or not. If you eat one meal and you end up farting and you're like, oh, forget this. Well, maybe you just need to ded dedicate a little bit more time before you deem something as, you know, terrible or useless or whatever other word you want to use and if you're interested in exploring this idea of beans a little bit more, Karen Hurd has been on lots of different podcasts. Um, you can find them on, on YouTube. She's been guests on lots of podcasts. So if you want to hear it directly from her, she's got some great stuff to say about beans. So I would suggest um, listening to what she has to say. So yeah, a little bit about beans right there and how they work. And now I want to talk about, this is so funny, um, the idea of health supremacy, health supremacy. And this has probably become more of a thing since Oyed AI, of course, because there are people out there who think that 
everyone is equal and that the virus is the great equalizer and that anyone can quote, <coughs> gosh, excuse me, anyone can quote, catch the virus, which of course we know that's not true. You can't catch a virus. You can't catch a dead particle that your body manufactures during a detoxification process that is just really just shit for brains type of uh, thinking. So now we have this idea that anyone who is a health supremacist is a fascist. So there was this hilarious screenshot on uh, Twitter. The core of health supremacism is the idea that those who are healthy are somehow, quote, better people, and that society may and must protect their interests and flourishing rather than the interests and flourishing of members of society at large. Well, first of all, I think that people who are healthy probably have less of an investment in society protecting their interests and flourishing because they probably have less that they want to do or interact with society in general. So the whole idea and the whole premise of this is actually very skewed to start off with. It's actually people who are the most infirm and the most ill who would want their interests protected by society. It wouldn't be the people who were healthy who actually didn't want anything to do with society. So right off the bat, we see a little bit of skewing of this. And this story, of course, was posted by some blue check on, um, on Twitter. Obviously, I think we know that blue checks are, are not to be trusted. So they're saying now that health supremacism, this is a, such a hilarious little term, Health supremacism is an ideology. Supremacist thinking always starts with an imaginary division of the world and supposedly, quote, superior and inferior people. Health supremacism is the idea that someone who is deemed, quote, healthy is superior to someone who has some form of impairment to their health. Any form of perceived illness or presumed health impairment on this line of thinking makes you categorically inferior, an inferior person. Health supremacism says that those who are healthy have a natural privilege to dominate others in society. And we have to obviously understand that there is no equality. Equality is a false god. It only is something that could ever exist in a communistic society. And even the whole idea, when we think about this in traditional Chinese medicine, we all have different constitutions. We all inherit a constitution from our parents and we all have the constitution we were given in this uh, life based on our choices in this world. So starting off the bat, knowing that we have different constitutions, there obviously could be no such thing as health equality. Otherwise, we would all have the same constitution and everything would be black cube, same, 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 same. So the idea of health equality is an absolute fantasy. And just like with anything else, there's going to be a hierarchy of things. This is just the way it is. Does this ruffle the feathers of certain people? It certainly does, but this is the reality of things. At the heart of health supremacism is a piece of fantasy that there is such a thing as a naturally healthy person who is not and cannot get seriously ill or disabled. <laughs> this is a fantasy because it is simply not true. Health is one of the most contingent facts about us human beings. Every one of us is always one infection or accident away from acquiring an illness or a disability. And maybe you could say that accidents may be more random, albeit some people are more prone to accidents. Could that be because of metaphysical factors? 
Could that be because of energetics? It could be for, could it be because of location? It could be a, a myriad of things, but some people are more prone to what is known as a quote infection in conventional medicine because of the chi status of their body. So there is no such thing as healthy quality. Otherwise, if there was something like allopathic medicine would be true where they give you the same treatment to everybody, like everybody who has diabetes in the conventional system, they all get the same treatment. But when we see it from a traditional Chinese medical perspective, maybe one person who's diabetic has key stagnation. Maybe another person who's diabetic has blood deficiency. So we would treat that differently. But according to this, we have to treat everybody the same all the time, which of course is a, is a hollow hoax. It's like the idea of, you know, race being a social construct, gender being or sex being on quote a spectrum. These are absolute fantasies. To say that all health is fragile is not to deny that there are structural inequalities in health outcomes. If you can't afford food or live in an area with significant air pollution, this is bound to have an impact on your health. Yes, of course. Structural inequalities leading to different health outcomes are precisely a reason not to essentialize health status. Well, I guess it's racist now to essentialize one's health status, right? Yet essentialism about health is precisely what health supremacism demands. It is health supremacy's backbone fantasy. And health supremacism supremacists do whatever they can to actively and uphold and perform this fantasy. Well, here's, here's the reality of it. Some people are healthier than other people based on a multitude of factors, and that is not a fantasy. That is just reality, and that's the way it is. Are they healthier because of maybe you know, what they inherited from their parents? their vaccination load, how they were raised, their diet as a child, their diet currently, their stress level, their current emotions, their marriage, their job, their exercise routine, their sleep routine, their personal spiritual or religious beliefs. All of these things are going to be different for people, their age, their race, their sex. These are all going to be different. So the whole idea of health supremacism is basically something that's being promoted by the most dysgenic among us who were frustrated by their own status. And it's, it's always those people who are promoting the idea that people who take care of themselves are somehow touting and flouting that they're superior, right? It almost sounds like that trope of being the chosen people when we know it's actually the opposite, right? So the idea that someone could be, quote, naturally healthy, this article is saying is, is not possible. Of course, we know that that's a hollow hoax. Now they're saying that... Um, Health supremacism got a boost during Oyed AI or the virus crisis. Um, of course, they would use a convenient situation like the virus crisis, which of course was manufactured to promote health supremacism. Remember, they always use events to promote ideas of what they want to promote, like they want to promote the idea of supremacy, right? So this is saying that there were people who were inferior, and those were the people who quote, got the virus, and that other people, the virus didn't get to them because they were uh, supreme, and they don't have to worry about it because they have a naturally strong constitution. Well, the people who did, you know, have the, quote, virus, obviously not from catching it, their body manufactured because they were doing a detox, because they were sick, and the way that works, essentially, whether it's a virus, a flu, whatever the hell you want to call it, you don't catch a cold. You earn a cold. You don't catch a flu, you earn a flu. 
And saying that to some people would be like, that would just, they would just start howling and, and shrieking. It's like, you know, almost like the most, you know, insane thing you can say to a lot of people, but that is how it works, right? If that was the case that anyone could just randomly walk outside, take a deep breath and immediately feel ill, then the, bo the bodies would be lining the streets, right? For the last couple of years. And obviously that didn't happen. So we earn our illnesses. We don't catch them. We earn them. So this just keeps on going on and on about the whole health supremacy thing and how it how it manifests and how it's um, it's widespread in the idea of ableism and a discrimination that favors able-bodied people and more and more of just this uh, essentially Talmudic uh, drivel is what this is and it's always so funny how the people who were doing all the precautions to keep safe from the quote virus, like all the fastidious, you know, the Talmudic hand washing and wearing the costume and, and getting all the vaccinations. And they were thinking like, I can't believe it. I'm still falling ill. Like, yeah, you earned it. You earned that illness based on the shit for brain stuff that you were doing. So in a way, those people are promoting and creating the idea of health supremacy by their shit for brains behavior. So in a way, the lowest among us promote the idea of health supremacy, where the highest among us just keep on chilling and keep on doing their thing. So then the article goes on and talks about health supremacism being a, a form of fascism. Of course, they have to bring up the hollow hoax, obviously. Any chance they get, they'll bring it up. It could be an article about soap, they'll bring it up. This is just how it works, right? So they're talking about the idea of eugenics and health purity and superiority and, and fascism, the idea that healthy people are better people. Healthier people just, it's a different, it's a different set of things, right? It doesn't mean we should malign anyone who's not as healthy. This is just what it is. Like everyone has their own metaphysical field. Everyone has their early childhood, their gestational health, their current health. And that is basically a conglomerate of where we are now. There is no such thing as health supremacy. There never was and there never will be. It's a fantasy by people who don't have health. That's essentially what it is. And they go on and on about how health supremacism differs from ableism and eugenics. So basically, the gist of this article is that people who are less likely to basically earn a cold or a flu are basically you know, promoting eugenics. So if you're naturally a healthy person who isn't prone to things like infection, then in some way, shape, or form, you may be a supremacist. So it's basically, this article is basically a way to penalize people who have had or have, who have health. That's what it is, right? It kind of reminds me of that Australian um, concept of the tallest poppy where the tallest poppy or the person who's succeeding among the other ones is cut down so they can be in the group with everyone else who's on the same par. So it's about cutting people down who are basically more successful and whether it's more successful with health, with business, with relationship, with finance, etc. That's essentially what it is. It's, uh, it's hilarious that someone would write this article. It looks like this guy, this guy, guy white who wrote this article yeah he looks like he's one of these self-hating whites who wrote this article it looks like he's written a lot of articles on 
unquote fascism and all of this type of stuff. Um, unfortunate about the virus, people who are just completely like, I feel like the virus is a, a source of pornography for a lot of people. It's like, it gets, gives them like a hard on to talk about the virus, uh, kind of a mind zoggle. But yeah, that's, um, that's my take on this whole uh, health supremacy thing, which is just absolutely ludicrous, totally, totally mind zoggling and an absolute waste of your time. Okay, on to the next topic. Um, let's talk a little bit about Chinese Zodiac. And this was mentioned by um, Seawolf. He's one of the listeners and he had requested a little bit of information about the Chinese Zodiac and the origins of it. And I didn't actually know a lot of this. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this and maybe you listening don't know and you'd like to hear about it. So here's a little bit about the Chinese Zodiac. The Chinese Zodiac consists of 12 animals that first appeared in the Zonggao period, which was in 5th century BC. No one knows the exact date as of when the Zodiac was essentially created, but they were officially identified during the Han Dynasty, which was 206 BC to 9 AD, which was over 2000 years ago. The Zodiac became a popular way to determine a person's birth year during the North Zhao Dynasty, 557 to 581 AD, and is still very commonly utilized today. The Zodiac is calculated by a cycle of 60 years, which each animal signifies a different year, and it goes on a 12-year 12, a 12 cycle. That's how it goes. It's very different from the Western Zodiac, what they call the Tropical Zodiac, which goes month by month, right? So the lunar calendar, the Chinese use a lunar calendar, paved the sequence of the zodiac animals. The calendar can be traced back to 14th century BC. Myths say that the emperor Huangdi, the first Chinese emperor in 2637 BC, invented the Chinese lunar calendar, which follows the cycles of the moon. And that's the original calendar, which of course would be set to a woman's cycle, which should follow the cycles of the moon. That's why I opened up the show talking about the idea of the spring equinox or the first day of spring actually being our new year, which when you really think about it, doesn't it make sense that the first day of the new year would be the first day of spring as opposed to the dead of winter? I think it makes a lot more sense personally. The zodiac was based on Chinese astrology and was used as a way to count years and months and days and hours in the calendar. It was formed from two components, the celestial stem and the terrestrial branch. Each of the 12 animals stands for a year in a 12-year cycle, a day in a 12-year cycle, and for every two hours in a 24-hour day. These were used to name each year among with the animal signs, but now they mainly just use the dates. There are many varieties of the origins of this story. Some say that the Jade Emperor called a race of animals on his birthday to create the Chinese Zodiac. Others say, in fact, it was the Buddha. Nevertheless, both stories are essentially the same, excluding some minor details. According to myths, the 12 animals of the Chinese zodiac were selected through a race. This race is meant to create a time measurement for people. There could only be 12 winners, and in order to win, the animals had to cross a rapid river and reach the finish line to the shore. So originally, there was a cat and a rat who hated each other with a passion. It's hard to believe that they were once friends. These two were the worst swimmers in the animal kingdom, but they were both smart. They discovered that the fastest way to the river is to hop on top of an ox. The generous ox agreed to carry them across the river, 
However, the rat was so eager to win that he pushed the cat into the water. Thus, the cat never forgave the rat and wasn't included in the race. Other variations of the story say that the rat just never told the cat about the race and did not even compete at all. Afterwards, the ox and the rat made it to shore. The rat jumped in front of the ox and came first in the race. The ox came in second and the tiger finished third. All of a sudden, a loud thumping sound came. It was the rabbit. It jumped from one stone to another and was doing well until it slipped. Fortunately, there was a log floating by and it grabbed onto that log and floated to the finish line, earning the fourth place in the race. The fifth place was the dragon, but everyone thought that it would come in first because it could fly. It told Jade Emperor that it had to stop a couple of times to help some villagers. And on its way to the finish line, it saw a little rabbit on the log and decided to give a little puff of air to help it to shore. And we're in the year of the rabbit right now, by the way. After the dragon, the horse came galloping towards the finish line. The sneaky snake was hidden behind the horse's foot. It suddenly appeared and the horse was scared. The snake took advantage of this and landed itself in sixth place. And the horse landed in seventh. Soon after, the monkey, the rooster, and the sheep landed onto shore. Unlike some of the previous animals, these three actually helped each other to get to the finish line. The rooster found a raft, and the monkey and sheep hopped on, working hard together through the water currents and the weeds. They reached shore. The sheep came in eighth place, the monkey in ninth place, and the rooster in tenth place. In eleventh place was the dog. Even though it was a great swimmer, it was late. It told the emperor that it needed a bath and the fresh water from the river was too tempting. Right when the emperor was going to close the race, an oink sound was heard. It was the pig. A lazy little pig originated from the story. The pig felt hungry in the middle of the race, so it stopped, ate something, and then fell asleep. After it awoke, it finished the race in 12th place and became the last animal to arrive. The order of the lunar calendar follows the outcome of the race, where the rat is the first animal to start the sequence and the pig is the last. After the pig, the sequence starts all over again. The lunar calendar has been a significant calendar in China and the Chinese zodiac. Many parts of the world are also familiar with this calendar. So that's the origin of how we get the Chinese zodiac. And there are many zodiacs. There's the Chinese zodiac. There's the tropical zodiac, which is the one most of us are familiar with. There's what's known as the sidereal, which is the Vedic one, which is uh, native to India, which is more of like an Aryan style of... Um, of Zodiac, there's the Nine Star Key, which is a Japanese one. So there's so much out there in regards to the Chinese Zodiac. And of course, every animal, and this is based by year, it's not by month, every animal has its own personality traits. Like, for example, we're in the year of the rabbit now, 2023. The um, characteristics of, of the rabbit are compassionate, sensitive, polite, and timid. And every one of these has it. And there's actually a really groovy book that I have. I think it's kind of a hard book to find. It's a 70s book, a little one of these like pocket books, like one of those little tiny pocket reader books. It's probably like a buck or two back in the 70s. And you're able to match up your tropical, you know, Western zodiac sign with your Chinese zodiac sign and then get a read for it. Like for me, it would be Taurus monkey, right? So I read for the monkey year and then I read for, for Taurus and then you get this fun little readout for being a Taurus monkey. And also with the Zodiac, there's different types of elements that go along with the Chinese Zodiac. So there's the element of metal, water, wood, fire, earth, and it depends on what year you were born. So if you're born in a year that ends with a zero or a one, you'd be metal. So you'd be like a metal pig or a metal ox or a metal monkey. 
If you're born with a year that ends two or three, you'd be a water. Ends with um, wood, ends with four or five, you'd be wood. Ends with six or seven, you'd be fire. Ends with eight or nine, you'd be earth. So you take the characteristics of your said year and you combine it with your five elements. For example, someone born on a metal year would be associated with rationality and willpower. And then you'd match that with your characteristics of your animal zodiac. So there's a lot here. It's fun. It's like anything else out there. You know, one of, the, one of these uh, little kind of tools out there that you can learn about yourself. But um, I thought it was interesting to include on this show because we're talking about TCM and how all this relates. So I hope that was uh, interesting information in regards to the Chinese Zodiac and the origins of that story. So now we're going to take a little break. I'm going to play us a song and we will be right back in just a moment on the broadcast. I am your host, Tabitha. You are listening to White Wellness Radio and this is The Holy Human. Welcome back to the broadcast. I am your host, Tabitha. This is White Wellness Radio, The Holy Human. So before the broadcast ended, we're at a little break right there. We were talking about the Chinese Zodiac, talking about the origins of it, the different uh, years one could be born in, as well as the different animals of the Chinese Zodiac. So now, let's shift gears a little bit, and let's talk a little bit about um, 
some more stuff in regards to traditional Chinese medicine and certain specific constitutional types and how that would work into a lot of the modern things that we see these days, a lot of the modern uh, diseases that we see these days and how we can kind of think of a way to quell that, I guess, right? So let's first go through some general guidelines for eating and living, and then let's talk a little bit about one of the constitutional types called dampness, which seems like a, a very popular constitutional type, especially in the context of the Western world and um, the Western diet. So let's first talk about some general guidelines which are good for everybody, regardless of their constitutional type, and then we'll talk specifically about dampness. So some general guidelines for food is that a meal should leave you feeling satisfied for about two to three hours. And that should be kind of like, you know, your, your thing you eat and then you stay satisfied and then you can eat after that. And you shouldn't spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of time between meals thinking about food. If you find yourself all the time fighting cravings, maybe you need to include a little bit more fat in your diet, maybe a little bit protein. Most of us do fine with the carbohydrates, right? We don't eat the, the right um, type, but we usually need to add a little bit more of the good quality lipids and the proteins. So if you have weight to lose, try eating three meals a day and maybe not eating as many snacks or eating smarter snacks, like eating healthy snacks. Like don't just eat something like as a sweet between meals for snacks. Also, if you're trying to lose weight, it's a good idea to relearn the sensations of hunger and fullness. It can give your digestive system a valuable rest between meals. I know sometimes in the current paradigms of um, food and, and you know dietary philosophies, it's very common to be told to be eating on a constant basis to fuel the fire. But if we're never giving ourselves a rest, we'll probably not be able to discern what full feels versus what hunger feels. Like we're already so desensitized in this world to certain feelings because of all the tech inundation. So it's a good idea to get comfortable and aware of what it feels like to be hungry and full. And obviously we don't want to get too hungry and we don't want to be too full, but it's a good idea to become familiar with those bodily sensations. Oftentimes we're so stuck in our head which is very like a young place to be when we really need to focus on feeling these bodily sensations. Meals should be prepared deliberately and thoughtfully and should be eaten in an environment that's relaxed. So the idea of eating when standing up, that's a really bad idea. Eating behind the wheel, bad idea. Eating when you're feeling strong emotions or you're rushed, bad idea. Uh, eating during an intense conversation or arguing, bad idea. Um, eating while scrolling your phone, bad idea. Uh, make sure you chew your food thoroughly. People oftentimes like to wolf their food down. We need to chew our food thoroughly. That's just kind of like a common sense type of thing. But I feel that a lot of people just they just like shovel it into their mouth and they just like hoover it essentially. Choose whole minimally processed foods as often as possible, organically grown. And minimally processed foods have more key energy vril or prana than processed foods, kind of goes without saying. Locally produced foods and in-season vegetables and fruits are ideal. Minimize iced beverages, cold or frozen foods. If we're going to drink liquid with a meal, 
drink a small cup of warm water tea broth or maybe like a little bit of alcohol but the idea of like having like a very large sweet iced tea or lemonade with your meal that's an awful idea that's awful on a multitude of ways for digestion for mood for libido for digestion digestion weight loss awful so that should if anyone's looking to you know, basically get into health or tip-top shape. You don't want to be drinking ice drinks and cold drinks and frozen foods. You definitely don't want to be taking those in when you're eating food. So those are some basic ideas for guidelines that will work for anybody. And now let's talk about some of the constitutional types and how we can eat for those constitutional types. So one thing would be considered spleen key deficiency. Key, of course, energy. Oftentimes spleen key deficiency is known as just key deficiency, but key deficiency directly impacts the spleen. So your spleen likes a regular meal schedule and needs downtime when it is not called upon to digest and absorb food. Constantly snacking and grazing throughout the day can make spleen key deficiency worse. That's why it's important to have meals and then have breaks and then have meals, but have a consistent schedule. I cannot reiterate enough the importance of having some type of schedule, not just when it comes to food, but a schedule in general. And oftentimes, if you see, people get caught up in habituations and substance abuse when they don't have a schedule. Oftentimes, substances give people the... Um, feeling of escapism and obviously self-sabotage as well. And then they don't have this schedule. And it's so important to have a schedule. Am I talking about, you know, waking up at the crack of dawn and having like a military schedule? No, I'm talking about a schedule that works for your life. But if you don't have a schedule and you don't have a plan, you can plan to fail. Inadequately chewed food imposes a heavy burden on the spleen and can cause spleen deficiency. So back what I said before, Chew your food. If you suffer from stagnation or spleen key deficiency, so either key stagnation or key deficiency, it's especially important to pay attention to your posture during and after eating. Sitting in a twisted or scrunched up way impairs the function of a digestive organ. So a lot of people, they sit in a chair when they eat. I know it's hard to believe actually anyone would sit in a chair and eat. I find it hard to believe because I don't use chairs. I have one chair in my house, truth be told that I use for guests when they come over because I don't sit in chairs. I also don't sleep on a bed that's not on the floor. I sleep on the floor. I don't do shit for brain stuff like that because I want to have a nice body, good digestion, good sleep. I want to stay youthful for the rest of my life. So I don't do stuff like that. So if you're sitting in a chair and you're constantly like hovering over and you're like pushing on your organs, you can expect to have spleen key deficiency. If you suffer from spleen key deficiency, liver key stagnation, kidney yang deficiency, you should be careful to avoid overeating. Eat only to the point that your stomach is two-thirds full. So eating too much when you have a, an, uh, an organ that's dealing with deficiency or stagnation is going to overtax the organ. So this whole idea that we need to be eating on a constant schedule to stimulate the metabolism is not going to work if an organ is deficient or stagnant. Light exercise on a daily basis, especially stretching, yoga, etc., is very important for individuals with spleen key deficiency, liver key stagnation, and kidney yang deficiency. Also things like a light walk after meals for better digestion and better health. It could be like a 10-minute walk. It doesn't have to be like a, a huge hike or anything like that. 
If you suffer from spleen king deficiency, dampness, phlegm, or kidney yang deficiency, try to minimize your consumption of pasteurized dairy products. Some individuals who have to completely eliminate dairy from their diets in order to resolve patterns of dampness or phlegm, or other individuals can tolerate two to three servings of dairy without a problem. And I have found that the pasteurized dairy that has protein in it is definitely more problematic for most people than let's say something like a hard cheese, which is gonna be lower in protein for the most part, butter or ghee, which is essentially proteinless, cream, which is proteinless. So you may wanna play around with that. And if you are going to eat dairy, you may want to eat stuff that's not cow because they say in TCM that cow dairy is the most damp. So that would be the one that would incur the most amount of weight gain when something like uh, goat or sheep is less damp. Foods that are nourishing to the spleen would be things like soups and stews, root vegetables, squash, chicken, beef, simple food, tasty stuff, and something known as kanji. This is a Chinese uh, porridge kind of like a soupy thing that's made with rice as opposed to, you know, in the UK they do like an oat porridge. So kanji is a very nourishing food for the spleen. It's especially well-suited for individuals who are weak or sick or elderly, otherwise compromised, also given to women in the postpartum time. So think about something like a kanji, which is basically just a lot of water or chicken broth that's cooked with rice. And then oftentimes, you know, ginger can be added, chicken, a hard boiled egg, maybe black sesame seeds on top. You can do a sweet version, but it's a very nourishing and simple food for the spleen. So basically when someone has spleen key deficiency, they want to focus on eating foods that are warming, easy to digest, they don't wanna overeat, they wanna eat with proper posture and they wanna stay away from cold foods. Now what are some foods that might damage the spleen? One would be sugar, high fructose corn syrup, agave, etc. Uh, they can impose a heavy burden to the spleen. Spleen key deficiency is most common disharmony among Americans and also people who eat the standard American diet. Sad. Uh, so eliminating sugars from the diet is the most important um, place to focus your attention. And that would also go for gluten for a lot of people too. If you eat gluten during the day for breakfast or lunch, it'll make you totally fatigued and totally tired. And you'll ask yourself, gosh, why do I feel like shit? Why do I need to like take all this caffeine and sugar to get through the day? It's because gluten is something, if you are going to eat it, it needs to be eaten in the evening time, which is the yin time, where it's the time to relax. You don't want to eat these foods that are going to make you sleepy and relaxed during the young energetic time of the day. But in general, gluten tends to be a heavier, you know, not gluten in general, but wheat tends to be one of the hardest grains to digest. It's a heavier grain. If you still wanna have some gluten in your diet, barley, rye, triticle, which is like a rye-wheat hybrid, maybe try that type of stuff, but all types of wheat, spelt, einkorn, uh, farro, um, whatever, there's so many different types, whether it's heirloom or not, it's just a heavier grain. And the more modern ones, which have more gluten, they're gonna make you more sleepy. And they can also put on weight too. Typically when people go lean on the gluten, they end up easily and instantly losing weight and they have a, hip, a heap more of a zip and energy because it's a food that makes you tired. So the whole idea in you know the Western culture, you eat like some wheat-based cereal, donut, bagel, uh, waffle, pancake, toast, etc. for lunch. 
for breakfast. Then you have a sandwich for lunch. And then you have maybe like a wheat pasta for dinner. No wonder everyone feels terrible, is gaining weight, and needs stimulants to get through the day. Obviously, right? Foods that damage the spleen to be continued with uncooked and cold foods. Thinking of cooking as a pre-digestion for your food. So by cooking the majority of your food, you are significantly lightening the load of your spleen. It does not have to work as hard to extract nutrition from your food. Understand this does not mean that you have to cook your food until it's gray and lifeless, obviously. Things like vegetation should be steamed or stir-flied just long enough to brighten their natural color. So yeah, we don't want to cook things to death, but eating cooked food is going to be more easy to digest. Iced drinks are especially harmful to the spleen, although it is difficult habit to establish, especially for Westerners. Learning to enjoy your beverage at room temp is a helpful step to take. It's especially important if you experience a number of symptoms of spleen key deficiency and yang deficiency like fatigue, uh, loose uh, stools, cold hands and feet, dizziness when standing up, and aversion to cold. And yeah, it can be a hard thing to break, especially for people who are, are raised on eating and uh, drinking cold foods or the idea of just, you know, grabbing and going something out of the fridge. But you can retrain yourself. And if you want to have foods out of the fridge, like let's say you make like some really great jello. Like the other day I made some really great cranberry jello. I warm it up for myself. I take it out of the fridge hours before because I plan things and I schedule things. And then I eat it when it's warm. That's the importance of having a schedule. You plan ahead so you don't make foolish food choices. So sweet foods in general can be damaging to the spleen. Um, uh, in Chinese medicine, each flavor enters a particular organ, sour the liver, salty the kidney, pungent the lung, bitter the heart, sweet the spleen. So small amounts of flavor to serve um, the boosting of the function of the organ that it enters, but a large amount of foods that are intensely flavorful will weaken their respective organs. So all grains in TCM are classified as sweet foods, as are fruits and pastries, etc. As you might expect, most American diets are very heavily weighed towards the sweet flavor and are not balanced with very much of the pungent, sour, and the bitter flavor. And that, an example of pungent would be something like horseradish, sour could be pickles, bitter could be something like radicchio. So if you're just eating sweet foods like the Western diet essentially suggests, this imbalance will weaken the spleen. In addition, the sweet flavor is inherently dampening, meaning that it leads to the generation of excessive fluids and phlegm. So that could be like edema or swelling or weight gain or phlegm in the nose and throat. In Chinese medicine, it said the spleen hates dampness. So there's another reason that eating too many sweet foods will damage the spleen. And of course, we want to stay away from unhealthy fats, hydrogenated fats, flied foods, most vegetable oils. These gum up the works of the spleen and lead to the formation of phlegm. What we were talking about earlier, we were talking about bile flow and soluble fiber. This will basically back up bile flow as well. It's going to be like kind of like a nasty grease trap in a restaurant. So in general, too much dairy can be considered weakening to the spleen as well, especially if it's pasteurized cow dairy. The exception of this is raw dairy because the natural enzymes and beneficial bacteria are intact in the raw milk, making it more digestible. Healthier fats to use, of course, would be like butter, 
ghee, olive oil, sesame oil. Um, I even like bone marrow and consider that to kind of be a fat. And bone marrow is something that's good for um, just general kidney essence or, or jing, as well as kidney ying deficiency, um, blood deficiency. So a little bit there about uh, the spleen and what damages the spleen. Essentially, the standard American diet damages the spleen. That's really what happens. So a bit more about damp accumulation. This is closely linked to spleen key deficiency. So first we talked about general guidelines. Then we talked about spleen key deficiency. And now we're talking about dampness. So damp accumulation is closely linked with spleen key deficiency. Because this disharmony is so common, um, there's a separate article that was actually written about it. And I'm going to read this one in just a little bit. But first, I'm going to talk about just a few more uh, constitutional aspects so we can get the idea of how this works. And if you're new to the show or new to this type of, of thinking, you can um, look at the show I did a couple of weeks ago called What's Your Type? And I, there was a little quiz that I put in there. And you can discern what your constitutional type is. Most people are going to be like a a mix of a few different things. So if you find this interesting and you want to kind of take more of an esoteric or mystical approach to health, I suggest checking out the show What's Your Type and finding out what your, um, your TCM type is. Okay, so a little bit more about dietary recommendations. Let's talk about yang deficiency now. So a human can become yang deficient through inactivity, the habitual utilization of cold food and beverage, frequent exposure to cold weather, and through having a weak constitution. Yang deficiency is also connected to emotional patterns such as depression or apathy. It is difficult to get the yang moving without moving the body. Gentle exercise on a regular basis is key. Be sure to keep the abdomen and the lower back covered and warm, and that's because uh, yang deficiency is tied to the kidneys, so you want to keep the kidneys warm. There's even this thing you can buy. You can buy them on like Amazagi Primate or a lot of other places online, and it almost looks like this kind of sleeve that you would wear around your abdomen. Oftentimes, women will wear them when they're menstruating to keep their kidneys warm. So if you're dealing with kidney yang deficiency, you might want to think about getting one of these warmers uh, to keep yourself nice and warm in the kidney region. Including warm spices in your diet, ginger, cinnamon, clove, cardamom, fennel, horseradish, black pepper. That's really good for kidney yang deficiency. And you want to keep it low on the stimulants. So stimulants can exhaust the body's ability to generate yang. So avoid caffeine if you have kidney or spleen yang deficiency. Up next is liver key stagnation or key stagnation in general. So we talked about spleen key deficiency. So in TCM, there's deficiency and there's stagnation. So either there's a lack of something or there's something, but it's kind of locked in, right? And you can see kind of with people, I've noticed the people who are more of like the hardy constitutional type, whether they're male or female, they have this robustness where they usually have a stagnation. And the people who have more of a weak, more yin constitution have the deficiencies. So for liver key stagnation, the most important approach to this problem is to eat simply and lightly. Pay particular attention to posture and tension during and after eating. A diet rich in vegetables and moderate fruit can help resolve stagnation. And there are certain vegetables and fruits that are just geared towards stagnation. There's fruits and vegetables and meats and 
grains and beans that are geared towards every type. Bitter foods can help resolve stagnation affecting the liver and the stomach. And moderate amounts of pungent flavor will stimulate the system at a stagnation. Onions and citrus peel are good for this purchase, purpose. So using onions in your food, adding citrus peel to maybe like a tea or something like that can be quite nice. And finally, um, the other thing, the one last thing I wanted to talk about, and, and actually there's actually a couple more, uh, blood deficiency. That's another one. So there's blood stagnation. That's one thing when the energy is there or the blood is there, it's just stagnant. And then we have blood deficiency where the person is lacking. So a more yin person is going to have deficiency of blood. A more yang person is going to have a stagnation of blood. And blood's considered to be a, uh, a yin fluid in TCM. So blood deficiency is one pair that is especially responsive to dietary changes. That's great news. Blood deficiency is almost always occurring against a backdrop of spleen deficiency, as the spleen is the root of the blood. So follow all the suggestions for a spleen supportive diet that we already discussed. Focus on adequate protein intake, very important. And lots of dark colored fruits and vegetables very specifically are good for blood deficiency. It takes 120 days to fully renew the blood, so dietary changes need to be maintained for this period of time to have an effect. The best blood-nourishing foods include cherries, beets, eggs, uh, vegetables, homemade soups and bone stocks, dates, beans, molasses, beef, pork, nuts, and believe it or not, Guinness beer. Yes, Guinness beer can be very nourishing to the blood if you have blood deficiency, it could also be nourishing if you have something like uh, blood stasis or stagnation. So we see in TCM, something like alcohol is prescribed medicinally to feed the blood. Does it mean that we're going to get shit-faced on beer? Certainly not. But if someone has a deficiency of something, we look at something like a stout beer, which is a very kind of robust and young style of beer, and we see how it can help you know, cultivate the blood deficiency, blood being a yin fluid. Up next would be essence deficiency. We talk about essence, we talk about the kidneys, we talk about jing. So kidney essence is tonified by using seeds and nuts as well as beans because beans are a seed, by using seaweeds and by making meat stocks actually. So made, making a meat stock, not necessarily a bone broth, but a meat stock made of boiling beef or chicken bones. Of course, make sure to use the best quality bones that you can get. And finally, we have yin deficiency. And we live in a world that's so young with all this tech 24-7 being available around the clock. It's just, it's too much sometimes, especially in certain parts of the day, you just kind of want to shut off. But now we have this culture which really kind of bloomed and blossomed, you know, around the time of Oyed AI where we're supposed to be on call all the time. So here are some recommendations for yin deficiency. The key to replenishing yin is rest and deep nourishment, two things that are undervalued in our fast-paced society. Yin-deficient individuals are usually go-go-go people who never turn off their minds or relax their bodies. Oftentimes, these people are utilizing stimulants to turn off their minds and relax their bodies. It is important for yin-deficient individuals to make time every day to relax and turn inward. This can be done via meditation, prayer, walking, listening to music. Too much time in front of the TV or the computer can make yin deficiency worse. This is especially true during the bleed time for women. It's good to take a break from electronics during that sacred time of the month. 
air conditioning and central heating can deplete yin. Continual exposure to EMF radiation, computer screen, etc. can also deplete your yin. Avoiding coffee, alcohol, and spicy foods if you're dealing with yin deficiency. Yin deficiency, people can usually tolerate larger amounts of fruit in their diet compared to others. That's because fruit is a yin food. So if you're deficient in yin, you want to take in yin. Makes sense. And then certain foods like string beans, asparagus, dark colored fruits like berries and things like that. Fish, eggs, dairy, and pork are all considered yin tonifying foods. And red meat would actually kind of err on the side of caution for someone who's yin deficient because red meat is so young. So if you're already deficient in yin, taking in a lot of red meat, especially lamb and mutton, which are the most warming types of meat, is kind of counterintuitive to what you'd really want to do. You'd want to do more fish and chicken and duck and pork to nourish your yin. So some basic guidelines there for how to eat based on your constitution, some lifestyle tips as well. Great stuff. And now let's talk a little bit about um, dampness and how that relates to clutter. I think this is a very interesting topic, maybe one that people aren't necessarily thinking about the relationship between these two things, but how having a damp body, a wet, phlegmy, typically overweight body could relate to maybe having lots of clutter in one's environment. Because of course, our health constitutions and conditions are not just based on what we ate for lunch or what we didn't eat for lunch. It's also based on our environment, right? So dampness, damp accumulation. Um, so what are some physical signs of dampness? Being overweight, high cholesterol, diabetes, bloating, loose stool, alternating with constipation and diarrhea, a bowel movement that has a lot of wiping afterwards, water retention or edema, especially in the lower legs and ankles, puffiness, um, most commonly found in the face and hand area, stiff swollen joints, heavy sensation in the legs, fibroids, ovarian cysts or endometriosis, prostatis or prostitis in, in men, uh, frequent UTI or urinary tract infection, having eye issues like blurry vision, cataracts and glaucoma, sinus issues, post-nasal drip, chronic cough, vertigo, um, ear congestion, hearing loss, and then things that are fungal like yeast infection, candida, toenail fungus, athlete's foot, dandruff, uh, allergies, whether they be food or environmental, and fatigue after meals. Those are the physical signs. There's also mental signs, brain fog, sluggishness, lethargy, difficulty waking in the morning and engaging in non-restorative sleep, worry, rumination, obsessive-compulsive tendencies, impulsiveness, inertia and procrastination, feeling stuck or swamped or overwhelmed, and the tendency to accumulate clutter. So how would one go about diagnosing someone with a damp accumulation? This person would probably have a fat swollen tongue with or without scalloped edges. The tongue might look like it's too large to fit in the person's mouth. A thick or sticky tongue coating, it could be white or yellow. A lack of physical sensation of thirst. So those are all ways to diagnose it. The more conditions a person has, the more severe the dampness. So what causes dampness, you may ask? Overeating, constantly snacking and grazing, not chewing your food adequately, 
eating lots of sticky foods, too much dairy, especially pasteurized, sugar, gluten, junky fats, eating foods that irritate your body, spicy foods, excessive amounts of onion and garlic, coffee, alcohol, nightshade vegetations, stagnation in the digestive tract, so not responding to bowel cues. So when you get that feeling like you have to use the toilet, you don't use the toilet, um, chronic constipation, gastroparesis, and ill food combinations can also cause dampness. Other causes of dampness can be physical inactivity, living in a damp or moldy environment, excessive thought, worry, or study, uh, use of antibiotics, use of steroids, and exposure to plastics. So what are some hormonal factors associated with dampness? Like dampness, female hormones are yin substances, especially estrogen is a yin, yin hormone, progesterone is a little bit more on the yang side. So when these hormones become deficient later in a woman's life during the perimenopause or menopause time, the body will tend to hold on to whatever yin substance it can manage to gather, including pathological dampness in a misguided attempt to resolve the deficiency. So when the hormones are going lower, the body tries to hold on to any yin substance, whether it's good or bad. The effort on the part of the body is to replace the missing healthy yin substances, the hormones, and often takes a form of cravings for sugar and bread and dairy, which results in weight gain, which is unhealthy yin that resists even very consistent and disciplined efforts to get rid of it. So there's good yin, there's bad yin, there's good yang, there's bad yang. We also have emotional factors that deal with dampness. When a person does not feel secure physically or emotionally, the body will tend to hold on to dampness in a misguided attempt to protect itself against threats. It's almost like in a lot of ways we think about metaphysical reasons why someone would be holding extra weight. It's not necessarily what they're eating. Of course, that's part of it, but sometimes the body holds on to weight as a protection mechanism. This is similar to the way the body will form mucus, which of course is a form of dampness in response to exposure to allergens, a type of threat. So what can we do to mitigate dampness? We can avoid sugar. We can avoid dairy, especially pasteurized cow dairy. We can trim back on our gluten, especially wheat. So if we are going to do things like sweets, we eat fruit. We eat a little bit of maple syrup or a little bit of honey. If we're going to eat dairy, we eat raw dairy or we eat um, the dairy that is casein free, cow casein free, or we eat a little bit of goat or sheep. If we're going to eat gluten, we do rye or we do barley. So either we eschew it all together if we can't get those things, or we eat within the guidelines that work for less dampness. Avoid foods, of course, that are cold in temperature, ice drinks, ice cream, and smoothies, or things that are cold in energy like salads and fruits. One of the easiest ways to get damp, ice cream. Avoid excessive consumption of irritating and spicy foods, uh, onions, garlic, nightshade, vegetations, etc. Um, even, you know, too many, what else could I say? Too many nuts and seeds that could also irritate a lot of people. Emphasize cooked, easy to digest and hydrating meals like soups and stews and a wet breakfast, congee, porridge, etc. Cold cereal is not breakfast, a wet breakfast, congee or porridge. You know what I have in the morning? I have a wet breakfast. I have oat porridge, I have egg custard, and I have an apple. And then I have some type of caffeine-free beverage with collagen to make sure I have enough protein. That's what I eat. I eat a soft, wet breakfast that will nourish and hydrate my body. 
I don't start the day with a cold smoothie or a coffee because I, I want to feel good. Include aromatic spices in your cooking, ginger and scallion and cinnamon, nutmeg, fennel, seed, mint, parsley, cilantro, or citrus peel, all kind of like fresh and zesty spices and herbs. Eat meals at regular intervals. So keeping a regular meal schedule. Again, I cannot reiterate the necessity of keeping a meal schedule. When you keep a random schedule for anything, you fall into this state of, of essentially inner and outer disharmony. Uh, stop short of eating until you are completely full. So eat to satiation, but not until you're like, you know, ready to bust open, chew your food, avoid eating while distracted or upset, respond to the urge to move your bowels as soon as it occurs. So when nature calls, get yourself to the loo, increase your physical activity. You can jump on a trampoline to stimulate lymph, lymph stagnation and damp accumulation form a vicious cycle in which the dampness can cause lymph stagnation and the lymph stagnation can cause dampness. Use a sauna or participate in an activity that induces copious amounts of sweat, hot yoga, etc. on a daily or on a weekly basis. Dry brush your skin with a brush before you get into the shower. Don't do this when you're wet after exercising or sauna because that'll actually kind of hurt. Dry brush your skin when you're dry before you go into the, um, you know, the shower. And you could also possibly find some herbs that would work for you but you'd have to work with someone, of course, to figure out what herb herbs would work for your system. And there are herbs out there which will drain dampness out of your body. So very good information to know because there's so much information out there about weight loss, which is um, just like crap. You know, it's just, it's, it's fake. Um, it's a hollow hoax. And they want you to, you know, basically believe these things that are not true and waste your money. Okay, so now I want to talk about dampness and how it relates to clutter. This is super, super interesting. And they have something in the Chinese philosophy called feng shui. It's kind of like a traditional Chinese medicine, not for the body, but for the home. Like they tell you, you know, don't put a mirror in a certain place or make sure your bed isn't facing the door for good, you know, for to have the best luck. It's, it's so fascinating. I've got a really interesting book on it um, in my library but very, very interesting thing about feng shui. So we're gonna be talking about clutter, which is completely and totally antithetical to feng shui. So the question you wanna ask yourself, is clutter making you fat and killing your mood? Important. So here is a bit about clutter. So when you have more stuff, you have more stress, right? Sometimes we think if we have more stuff, we have more happiness, right? But Stuff doesn't buy happiness. Having more stuff just is stress because then you're like, oh, where's that? Where'd that go? Oh, I'm missing that. And that just builds more stress. Then you look around the environment and it's brimming with stuff. Maybe you have a room. Some people have rooms with like unopened boxes of stuff that they've bought they can't even return anymore. So um, there was a study done back in 2010 that found that for women, there is a clear link between the high density of household objects and elevated cortisol. Cortisol, of course, is a stress hormone. So it's stressful just having all this extra crap in the house, right? Things that maybe we don't even need anymore, like something we don't fit into anymore or something that's, we just, we don't even, like a, a, a vase or a bowl that has a chip in it. And they even say in feng shui that you should not wear clothing with rips in it 
and you should not use bowls or plates that have chips in it because it's it's bad luck and it's not a good idea to like use something that basically like gives you low status like makes you have like low self-worth for using something that's like ripped or stained or chipped so here are some super mind-zoggling stats on the ridiculous amount of stuff that americans have so there are get a load of this 300,000 items in the average American home. Wow, that is incredible. And that could be everything from like a stapler to, you know, canned food. The average size of the American home is nearly tripled in the past 50 years because people have more stuff. And it's interesting, people actually have less people living in the household these days, less extended family, less of multi-generational generational aspects of family, less children, Yet we have bigger houses because of all the stuff we have. And still, even with that, those stats, one out of every 10 Americans will rent an off-site storage. The fastest growing segment of commercial real estate for the last four decades, those places like public storage, I see them all over, those pods, people renting extra space because of all their stuff. It won't fit in their house. While 25% of people with a two-car garage don't have room to park the cars inside of them, and only 32% have room for one vehicle, again, because of all the stuff. The U.S. has over 50,000 storage facilities, more than five times the number of Starbucks. British research found that the average 10-year-old owns 238 toys, yowza, but only plays with 12 of them on a daily basis. 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but they own 40% of the toys consumed globally. The average American woman owned 30 outfits, one for every day of the month. In 1930, that figure was nine. The average American family spends $1,700 on clothing annually. Whilst the average American throws out 65 pounds of clothing per year. And a lot of the clothing these days, you know, it's... It's that fast fashion where you buy a shirt for under 20 bucks and you don't keep it. Some reports indicate we consume twice as many material goods today as we did 50 years ago. Currently, the 12% of the world's population that lives in North America and Western Europe account for 60% of private consumption spending, whilst the one-third living in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa accounts for only 3.2%. Americans spend more on shoes and jewelry and watches, $100 billion, than they do on higher education. Over the course of our lifetime, we will spend a total of 3,680 hours, or 153 days searching for misplaced items. The research found we lose up to nine items every day, or 1,900,743 in a lifetime. Phones and keys and sunglasses and paperwork are at the top of the list. Americans spend $1.2 annually on non-essential goods. In other words, stuff they do not need. And that's the sad thing. Most people are in debt and they're buying stuff they don't even need with money they don't have. So a little bit about feng shui. I had alluded to that um, just a moment ago. So a fundamental tenet of Chinese philosophy and medicine is that the human body is a microcosm of the universe. So in feng shui, a Chinese practice that dates back to about 4,000 years ago, it's the study of how our environment affects us. And although some feng shui concepts seem strange or superstitious to Westerners, 
We have all experienced spaces that elevate us and relax us and feel harmonious. And we've experienced spaces that make us feel stressed, edgy, and tired. So here's the fundamental premise of feng shui. It's really quite simple and it makes perfect sense. When you live and work in places that feel good, your attitude becomes more positive and your quality of life improves. Pretty simple, right? So feng shui gives us language to describe a lot of things that we already know intuitively, such as the fact that there is a clear link between a cluttered living space and stress. According to feng shui, clutter can even contribute to health problems like obesity. That's right. So here's a little bit about that. So if we live in a constant state of, of chaos, right? We just kind of get blocked. We get stagnant. We'll eat too much. We'll sit on the couch. Uh, we may use the toilet once a week. So chaos predominates and inertia grows. And then we have basically more adipose tissue um, when we have more personal possessions and it feels like an insurmountable task to lose either one of them. We get into this stasis, what they call stagnation in TCM, because we have all of this stuff. It subsumes us. It's so just, you know, just like it bowls us over. It's like it's, we're drowning in it. And a lot of this stuff will basically hold an emotional charge, you know, like stacks of bills that need to be paid. Um, let's say a gift that someone gave you and your family member who was well-meaning, but they never quote got your personal style. Um, a lipstick that, you know, washes out your face collection of books that you never read, right? A cabinet full of expensive beauty products that promised to solve some type of beauty woe, but they didn't do anything. You know, we have all this stuff lying around and then we may feel guilty or overwhelmed, frustrated, discouraged, disheartened, annoyed because we bought all this stuff. It never performed. We never used it. And all we feel like doing is plopping down on the couch, maybe watching the Tomwood vision, snacking on some chips, and then we have all this clutter shaping our life, and then we get firmly entrenched in these very unhealthy habits. So what other health problems can clutter cause besides being overweight or obesity or dampness, seasonal allergies and sinus problems, digestive stuff like constipation and IBS, hormonal stuff like PMS and painful periods, migraine headaches, insomnia, chronic fatigue, ADD and ADHD, irritability, chronic pain. So in a way, our environment is a key factor in how we feel. And for some people, they're probably more sensitive to it than others. But in general, it all affects us in a certain way. Uh, so be mindful of, of your clutter. Think about ways that you can mitigate some of it and stop buying more stuff if you have stuff to get rid of. Always make the, uh, the, you know, make the overture to get rid of what you already have before you start buying more stuff. That's always a good thing to do. Otherwise, you're going to just find yourself subsumed with tons of things. And then you're going to feel frozen to start any type of, you know, healthy habits. You're going to feel frozen in regards to eating healthy or getting exercise or cleaning up the house because it's going to feel like a like a mountain you can never climb because there's just so much to do. So one of the best ways to basically take care of your body is to take care of your environment, which consequentially takes care of your emotional health. So that was a little bit about clutter, 
and dampness and the accumulation of that and how having a damp constitution can kind of facilitate or works hand in hand with clutter and how that works into like obesity and stagnation and just, you know, not having key that flows smoothly. So think, think about health from this perspective of it's not just diet. Of course, diet is a, is a massive part of it. And, and that's, that's great and beautiful. And we can use diet as a tool. We could use food as medicine. We don't necessarily have to take heaps of supplements or herbs, although sometimes those things can be nice, but we don't have to rely. Everyone's always so quick. Even when I talk to people who are doing the counseling, everyone just wants to take a supplement and a herb because they're having some type of ailment. No one wants to think about changing their diet. No one wants to think about changing their lifestyle. They still think in that allopathic way that they're going to be able to get some herbal pill or herbal supplement, almost analogous to seeing Dr. Z, but in a more of a holistic fashion. And that's going to solve all of their issues when the root cause of mitigating the foul foods from the diet and changing the lifestyle, having better lifestyle habits, not just the clutter, but having better posture when you eat. And that's a tremendous thing. How many people are not sitting properly when they eat or they're not chewing their food properly? You know, I mean, you, you should be able to sit down on the floor and have good posture where you don't need to lean yourself back onto a chair, right? And if we don't cultivate that, then our bodies are going to break down, especially if we eat all types of unsavory food or we're, we're loafing on the couch. I mean, so many couches are, are built to just cause all types of, of, you know, problems. Like we get these furniture bodies in the West from sleeping in beds and sitting on chairs and, and couches. And I mean, all that stuff is, is new stuff. We may think it's, it's part of like, you know, high culture and, you know, being a civilized person. But a lot of these primitive people have way better flexibility, way better diets. They're much healthier and they don't have all the clutter from all the, the, the shit that we have in, you know, this, these developed world because we can, we can afford it, but it's really working against us. It's making us spiritually poor. It's very unfortunate. So I think that's all I have for this broadcast, The Holy Human. We talked about the Bean Protocol. We talked about this ludicrous notion of, quote, health supremacy. We talked about the Chinese Zodiac. We talked about general guidelines for uh, constitutions from a TCM perspective. And then we talked a little bit about the constitutional type called dampness and how clutter can actually affect dampness and induce things like obesity. So I think I will be closing out the show now. I thank everyone for listening to this broadcast, um, listening uh, live, very much appreciated. And be sure to catch all the broadcast over here on White Wellness Radio. So thank you for listening. You have just listened to The Holy Human on White Wellness Radio. I am your host, Tabitha. Until we meet again next time, Satnam. <laughs>